Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started this morning. We'll uh, continue our uh, study of the history of the future. I uh, thank you for the questions that I got on the website. Let me uh, let me put it up here again. It's propheticquestions dot uh, sorry not dot com. Prophetic questions at Gmail. And appreciate any questions you have. If today's lesson doesn't generate questions, I'm really just not trying hard enough. Uh, so let's just pray and we'll get started. Thanks, God, for your grace for uh, visiting with us when we gather together. Pray that today's uh, conversation will be one that. Uh, both honors you and um, enriches our walk with you as we see you uh, the way you present yourself and understand the consequences of uh, the just wonderful uh, freedom you've given us to make choices. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, there they are. So today we're going to start a a two-week session on... uh, the topic that I think you, you gotta you gotta do early in any uh, uh, any sort of uh, lesson about prophecy or the future, um, because you know basically you know what what is a what is a what is a future without hell? That's uh, that's that's so that's this topic we're going to have for the next two weeks, and you know it get, hell gets talked about quite a bit in our culture, but it's usually not in the way we're going to talk about it today. Uh, you know, it tends to get used uh, a hell of a lot, you know. And uh, why, why do we say that, hell of a lot? Why, why do people say? Well, I think it's because, huh? Google it. You Google it, yeah. Well, I, I think I think that uh, that actually probably comes from the Psalms where it says uh, hell has an insatiable appetite. And so people use it as the insatiable appetite and then it just kind of got carried along. Um, uh, and you know, people tend to kind of use the hell out of hell. So why do we say that? You, you beat the hell out of whatever, uh, and uh, Texas A&M fight song, whatever. Um, and you know, getting rid of hell, I think, is something that in our culture is, has been generally conceived of as a good thing. You, you don't like hell; you want to get rid of it. Um, and I don't, I don't hear this so much anymore, but. When I was younger, uh, if you really wanted to uh, say something ugly to somebody, one of your choices was to tell them to go to hell. And you know, this is this is a this is a uh, I guess a a uh, about the worst thing, worst destination you could wish on somebody. And of course, you know, the whole idea of cursing is you know the worst curse is to damn someone to hell. And cursing is a interesting thing. Uh, it's it's a simultaneously trying to crush someone else while sitting in the place of God. Probably not a good idea as a general rule. But overall, I would say that what what this kind of conversation does is it is it tends to trivialize the whole idea of hell. Then, of course, in our modern culture. We uh, have a large group of people who are proudly on the highway to hell. 
and they sing the song and they do the anthem and they raise their fingers, you know, they're in with the devil's horns and whatever. So hell has actually become quite cool in many respects. Uh, so, so I think when we start talking about hell, we one of the things we have to do is disengage from this cultural. Um, trivialization of hell and and to some extent with our over familiarity with something we never talk about or think about. Now in my uh, experience in talking about the subject of hell it seems to have two predominant reactions. There seems to be two kind of predominant uh, schools of the people who care and for the most part most people would prefer just not to think about it. But the two, two camps who really care, there's one camp that's very, let's call it traditionalist, and there's a certain number of mythologies that go with the, the topic, and they tend to cling to them very, very vigorously. And uh, my sort of extrapolation of the behavior on the whole is that they really like the idea of having somewhere for other people to go to that they don't like. Uh, and then there's a group of people that just really don't like hell and they're looking for a way to get rid of it. They actually like to talk about it some, but they want to talk it away. Uh, we're going to do neither today. And we're gonna, what we're going to do is honor our setup from last week where we basically said when we talk about prophecy, uh, the, the, typical, the typical scenario is that um, we, the people, let's say the Pharisees we looked at in specific, Uh, tended to really dig into the details about what was going to happen and miss the whole point. And we looked at at Jesus saying, you know, you really study the scriptures because in them you think they have eternal life, but they're all talking about me and you won't come to me so you can have life. In other words, you've really dug into the details, but you missed the whole point. So in keeping with that general theme, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some details about this topic hell, but we're not going to f- we're not going to uh, lock in on the details. What we're going to do is make sure we get the big point, and the big point is real simple. I think it's that uh, sin is a really bad idea because it just doesn't pay. That, that's that's the overall point. Sin has really bad consequences. And you want to avoid it. Okay? I think that's the big point. So let's talk about hell. And uh, it's probably going to take us about two weeks here to get this topic uh, covered. And first of all, let's talk about the word hell uh, in the scripture, not from culture. And we've talked about it tends to be a trivial uh, part of conversation, but from scripture. So hell, it depends on which uh, uh, translation that you pick up as to what words they translate as hell. But uh, in general, if you have an older translation uh, of the the Scripture and you look at the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, hell is generally uh, a translation of the word sheol, the Hebrew word sheol. Uh, if you get a newer translation, uh, they, may, they may or may not use uh, hell for Sheol. And even if you go in the older translation, uh, the word Sheol is sometimes translated hell, sometimes translated pit, sometimes translated death, sometimes translated grave. So 
there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of um, uh, consistency in, in using this word shio. We'll talk more about that next week, uh, shio. But generally speaking, the Old Testament concept of, of uh, hell is shio. And uh, in the LXX, which is the, um, Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the LXX generally translates sheol, Hades. And we'll talk about Hades more next week. If you go to the New Testament then, uh, the, the word hell is generally one of three different words uh, that, are, that are translated. The first one is Gehenna. We're going to talk about that at length today, Gehenna. Uh, the second one is Tartarus, which actually only occurs in the Scripture one time. And the third is Hades. In the modern translations, I've noticed that uh, they've stopped translating Hades hell, and they actually just say Hades for the most part. But it, again, it depends on the translation, whether, what, what they stick with here. Uh, Basically, all the translations translate Gehenna as hell uh, and Tartarus. These, these two get, get translated every time. Hades, sometimes it's Hades, sometimes it's hell. In the ESV, hell appears 14 times in the New Testament. 12 times it's Gehenna, one time Hades, one time Tartarus. And uh, nine times they translate Hades uh, as Hades, one time they translate Hades as death. I'm not sure why they made that departure. One time they translate Hades as hell. That's ESV. In the New King James, it uh, seems to be more consistent. Uh, they translate Hades, Hades. Uh, the New Testament, um, they have uh, hell show up 13 times. It's either Gehenna or Gar- Tartarus every time. And in the Old Testament, they actually started using Sheol. So this, is, this has begun to shift some in the modern translations, but you probably wouldn't notice because it just this topic doesn't get talked about all that much. So what we're going to do next then is go to hell. <laughs> if someone tells you to go to hell, you can actually do that. You can actually get on an airplane and go there because Gehenna is still actually a place today. So let's go to Gehenna and understand this word picture that shows up 12 times in the New Testament and is the most graphic, I would say, of of the different pictures. By the way, uh, I'm going to tell you that I I generally don't think Gehenna actually is talking about hell. And the the phrase that I think actually is talking about hell, for the most part, is uh, the lake of fire. And it doesn't get uh, translated hell very often, but I actually think this is hell. And we'll, we'll talk about that in due time as well. But first, let's talk about Gehenna. And let me also warn you that hell is a, is a topic that is kind of scary, uh, but I'll just kind of ease your mind some because the presentation I'm going to have is it's probably worse than you think. So just don't worry. Uh, okay, so Joshua 15, we'll start with. Joshua 15. Verse 
uh, we're going to get introduced to this place. Now let me uh, break down the etymology of this word. In the in the Old Testament, what you have is ge, uh, ben, hinnom, and it's translated valley of the sons of Hinnom. This is generally the way this is uh, done in the Old Testament. And by the time you get to the New Testament, it's been kind of shortened to Gehenna. So what we're talking about is the valley of the sons of Hinnom. So let's look at uh, Joshua 15, verse 8. Uh, we'll start in 7. He's talking about the land of Judah here. Then the border went up towards Deborah from the valley of Achor, and it turned northward toward Gilgal, which is before the ascent of Adaminum, which is on the south side of the valley. The border continued on with the waters of El Enshemesh and ended at El Enrogel, and the border went up by the valley of the son of Hinnom to the southern slope of the Jebusite city, which is Jerusalem. So this valley of Hinnom is uh, on the border of Jerusalem. And if you go there today, it's still called that, the Hinnom Valley. So Jerusalem is bordered by two valleys. There's actually a small valley that goes down the middle of it. It has two valleys. Anybody know what the eastern valley is? It has the Mount of Olives on one side. The Kidron Valley. It's the Kidron Valley, and you'll hear about that quite a bit. So you got the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley, the Eastern Gate, and most of the pictures you get from people that have gone to to Jerusalem will be uh, up on the up on the uh, Mount of Olives, looking at the city and the Dome of the Rock and all that across the Kidron Valley. Well, on the other side is the val- the Hinnom Valley, the Valley of Hinnom. This is Gehenna. So, why is Gehenna hell? Well, let's go. It has a it has a uh, history. So this is going to be kind of like Wall Street. If I say to you Wall Street, what do you think of? New York York City. Why? That's where Wall Street is. Well, there's one in Midland. Has a really good restaurant on it. Okay. If I say I'm going to work on Wall Street, what what do you think is happening? I'm 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 a stock guy, right? I'm a money money guy. Now the reality is, most of the people that work on Wall Street work in a building that doesn't have a Wall Street address, right? And they may work in Los Angeles because we call Wall Street the whole world of high finance. And it's basically because J.P. Morgan's office was on Wall Street. It still is today, 60 Wall. Uh, And J.P. Morgan is like the icon of of finance. Great history channel, uh, uh, episode on him if you ever want to watch it. So this is this becomes a the same type of thing. We're going to find Gehenna. What's in this valley becomes a byword to tell us the geography becomes the uh, the activity. It's going to be the same kind of thing. So let's look at Jeremiah seven. Now you know the background of Jeremiah. I've got to is uh, we are just on the cusp of the Babylonian captivity and exile 
as for part of uh, for, for part of uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations, and then part of Jeremiah the the uh, the uh, captivity's taken place. So this is spanning the the captivity, and for a big part of it, Jeremiah is is prophesying and telling people. Uh, what's wrong and why God's going to do what he's going to do. And actually urging them to repent and avoid it. So in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31, he, uh, let's just start with the sentence right before that. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Let's look at Jeremiah 19. Um... The, sorry. Okay. On seven? Yeah. Verse 32. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, and it will no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the sons of Tim, but the valley of slaughter. And they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. And the corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth, and no one will find them away. Okay. That's not a very happy picture. Okay, well, we're going to see more of that in 19. Uh, Thus says the Lord, this is right after the potter's wheel. And God says, uh, go to the potter's house. And he sees the potter pot, you know, potting and then he makes a mistake and he just reforms it and starts over. And he says, that's what I'm going to do to Israel. I'm just going to reform it and start over. In the next chapter, he says, thus says the Lord, go get a potter's earthen flax, flask. Take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate. So we've got a gate of the wall of Jerusalem looking right out on this valley. Now, let me, let me just give you a little more geography background here. This valley also happens to be the downwind valley. And in all these ancient cities, there was always a downwind a place that was downwind and downhill. So what went downwind and downhill in an ancient city, do you think? The sewage and the garbage and the corrupt, any, anything dead. So uh, they would actually take water at the top of the street and actually flood the, flood the street, all the refuse and all the, all the horse dung and everything else would go, would go out into this valley. And if something died, they'd put it in the valley. A lot of times, they'd set it on fire, you know, to try to keep the, try to keep the, uh, uh, you know, the rot and the stench down. And there'd be worms out there and stuff. You kind of get the picture. This is not this is not where you'd want to put your house in the burbs. This is the, the so the, this is this is this valley. Go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words I will tell you, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel: Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. 
because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned incense in it to other gods, whom they, neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. <clears throat> they have, I have also built the high places of Baal, to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. This place shall no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the of Hen, sons of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Now, let me give you a little more um, historical background here so you can get this full picture. We've actually been to uh, Israel and seen an excavation of a pagan altar, Tophet. Tophet means drums. And what they did is they would take uh, an idol, a bronze idol um, to Moloch, which is part of this Baal thing, part of the overall deal. And it was bronze, it had a head of a calf and a crown on it, and they would build this fire into this uh, idol, and then they would beat drums to create a real loud sound, and then go take their children and throw them into this idol, or place them on the arms of the idol, and sacrifice living children to this foreign god. That's what happened in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And so it's called the Valley of Tophet, the drums, because that's where the drum beating would come from. So you, you get, you're starting to get this place, this picture in your mind, refuse, uh, bodies burning, smoldering fire, worms, uh, and then the, this wickedness of sacrificing your own children to uh, the satanic expression. So Gehenna is the place where wickedness, death, destruction, corruption, it's the very picture of it. It gets worse. Um, Let's see. Verse 8, I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its plagues. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. What's about to happen is Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in, and Jeremiah tells them, look, you made a, you made a treaty with Nebuchadnezzar. Honor it. If you do, everything will be fine. And the people say, yeah, we're going with Egypt. Egypt will save us from Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah says, no, he won't. I told you, you don't ever rely on Egypt. That's part of our deal. And people say, we're not going to listen to you, Jeremiah. So, what happens is, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and sieges the city. And it becomes so severe that actually people are eating dead people. That's what happened. And then when they finally broke through, half a million people got killed. Which is what we read about next. Verse 10, then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. Remember, he had this earthen pot with him at this potsherd gate, and he's going to break it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, even so I will break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again. 
and they shall bury them in Tophet till there's no place to bury. So they're just going to stack them up. Thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Tophet. You want to burn your kids in, in the idol? Fine, you're going to get burned. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet. Because of all the houses on roofs, they've burned incest to the host of heaven and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city, on all her towns, all the doom I've pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks, that they might not hear the words. Just as a matter of interest, let's just read a little further. Now Pashar, the son of Emmer, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashar struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. So that was his reward for telling this to people. We don't like your message, so we're going to put you in stocks. So this is Gehenna. This is the Valley of Hinnom. This is, this is, the, this is what uh, any Jew is going to have in his mind if you say Valley of Sons of Hinnom. He's going to have Jeremiah 19 in his mind. He's going to have, uh, we could read, uh, well let's do, let's just read 2 Chronicles 28.3. 2 Chronicles 28.3. This is all in the run up to Jeremiah. Chronicles is written to explain why the Babylonian captivity happened. And it was because of unfaithfulness. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. This is 1, 28-1. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now this is a king of Judah. You don't want to be like Israel. And he made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations. Ahab, Ahaz. And then Manasseh goes on and does the same thing. So you have this pattern, this history of falling into Canaanite worship and the worst kind of expression of it of sacrificing your own sons and daughters, your precious children that God's given you, and you're sacrificing them to this idol. This is kind of the bottom depths of, of uh, corruption. So, now we come to Matthew. Matthew uh, is the first place where Gehenna shows up. Matthew chapter 5. This is the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to mention this, and then I'm going to spend my time in, in Mark 9. Because these two episodes are really the place where we see Gehenna. And um, I'm just going to say Gehenna when I, when I read it. I think that's the way it ought to be translated. The translators are not allowing us to make our own interpretation when they say... Hey, it would be like if, if, uh, if we wrote something and, and somebody said, uh, you know, Eric went to Wall Street to work. And someone comes along later and translate it and said, Eric became a thief, or Eric became corrupt, or Eric became rich. You know, so you take a stereotype of something and just... So anyway, 5.30. Um, 
If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into Gehenna. Now let me go to Mark 9, because he says something real similar there. And this... uh, I'm going to skip the one that says, um, don't fear the one who can kill your body, but the one who can put both body and soul in Gehenna. And I'm going to focus on this one. So there's the three episodes, so really the Sermon on the Mount, this episode, and the one where he says, don't fear the body. That's, that's where Gehenna shows up in the Gospels. That's pretty much it. So Mark 9, and let's start in chapter 30, uh, verse 33. Mark 9, 33. Then he, this is talking about Jesus, came to Capernaum. Capernaum was their headquarters city, northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when he was in the house, he asked them. He's talking to their disciples. The disciples are walking along with him. So this is Jesus in the house with his 12 disciples. And he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourself on the road? But they kept silent. Because on the road, they had disputed among themselves, who would be the greatest? So we got, they were actually the 12 Muhammad Ali's. This was actually their favorite topic. You know, two of them even got their mom to come and try to get them the greatest thing. And and I think this is one of the reasons God chose them. They They wanted to be great and they were willing to die for it. And he sat down. He's going to give them a lesson on greatness now. That's what's about to happen. And so he sat them down, he called the twelve, and he says, If anyone desires to be first, who of them desires to be first? All of them. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Music to their ears, right? You think that's what they were disputing on the road? Probably not. Then he took a little child and set them in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, so you get the picture, he's got this child and he's hugging. And he says, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So now, just put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You just got through arguing very vehemently. It's loud enough where Jesus hears it, right? That you are the greatest. And, and, and now you're listening to this little sermonette where Jesus says, if you serve a child, you're becoming great. How's that strike you? How's that going to sit with you? Is it going to be, oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking? Now, John answered him. This is very clever how John answers. And says, uh, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, not one of us, not one of us twelve, casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. What's he saying? So, who can, who can do something nice for a child? Who, who, all does that, who all does that qualify to be great? Anybody. Anybody, right? Even a woman. How you feel? You're chagrined right now, right? So the, so the question is, um, 
You're just talking about us though, right? Just among the 12 of us. That, we're not talking about just anybody here, are we, Jesus? I mean, you're just talking about us, right? Jesus said, nope, don't forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. It's really amazing here. He's really, he's really chastising them pretty severely. So the first thing he says is, uh, yep, it's actually anybody. Anybody can be great. Which, does that make you happy if you're one of these guys? It's not really what you wanted to hear. But then listen to what he does next. He who's not against us is for us. Who's, on, who's us? See, you are on my team. You, you are on my team. But this, this is a bigger game than just us. We want to serve everybody. I want you to be great by serving. But you spread it around. Anybody can be great. Because you belong to Christ, what do they do? They what? Belong to Christ. Who do these guys belong to? Christ. Are they believers? Yes. Do believers belong to Christ? They belong to Christ. Because you belong to Christ, assuredly do you say, He will by no means lose His reward. If you treat children well, you get a reward. What were they after on the road? What do they want? A great reward, right? The reward of what? Being the greatest when Jesus comes into His kingdom. I want to sit on your right hand. But by whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, he's holding a child in his arms, right? While he's saying this. He's got an object lesson going on. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Does anybody know what a millstone is? It's very heavy. Okay, You use a horse to turn this giant rock, two, two big pancake-shaped rocks, and the top one turns on, top, on, on the bottom one that stays stationary, has a hole in the middle. You pour the grain in the middle, and the grain works its way out through the millstone in between the pieces. There's some... Uh, some uh, uh, channels that are carved into the stone so that the grain can work its way out to the outside and when it gets to the outside and falls around the tray it is flour and so you can mill corn you can mill wheat whatever a millstone it's it's by its nature heavy so it will crush the uh, the wheat so if you have a millstone tied around your neck you would not be able to walk to the sea you would have to be carried in a cart and if you have a millstone tied around your neck, you're not going to float on the surface for a while. You're going straight to the bottom. And that would be better than if you'd lead a child astray. It would be better. I think it would be better because it's over quickly. We're talking about rewards, right? You want to be great? Serve the child. What happens if you lead the child astray? Well, I'm not telling you specifically just yet, but I'm telling you it'd be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the ocean. We're talking about rewards to people who belong to Christ. It is if your hand causes you to sin. 
Now, what sin in particular are we talking about here? What is it? Uh, stealing? Uh, don't think so. Causing a little one to stumble, for sure. What other sin we might we have in, in view here? What, what, what are they all actually practicing? What's the root sin behind leading little ones astray? Pride. Yeah, they're all lifting themselves up and making it all about me, right? No one in here has a problem with that one, do we? Yeah, we're making everything about me, elevating ourselves instead of serving others. Well, and not only that, we're creating division among the body, right? Because when they're arguing on the road, are they all together and unified? Are they, are they dividing one another? They're dividing one another. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the life maimed rather than have two hands. Go to hell. So now, if you translate this hell, you see my problem with the word, the translation hell? You've got people who belong to Christ, the twelve disciples in fact, and the, the basic subject is who's greatest and how do you become great and what is your reward and all of a sudden they're going to hell because they didn't cut their hand off for sin. Is that the way we go to heaven? Is cut our hand off if we sin? Is that, is that the way you do that? They belong to Christ. This is not talking about eternal destiny. It's talking about consequences of sin. You see, this is why I'm saying it get worse. <laughs> because what we tend to do with the, the idea of hell is it always applies to someone else. And here, this is not actually talking about the lake of fire as the place where unbelievers live forever. This is talking about the valley of the sons of Hinnom. Who went into the valley of slaughter? Whose bodies filled up the valley of slaughter? Who was it? Israel. Did Jesus cast Israel aside? Let's go back to Jeremiah real quick. Keep your finger in Mark. We're coming right back to it. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 29. This is what God says about this horrific event that's about to happen. Chapter 29 verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, they're about to be deported after half a million people die and so many people that, that the valley of the son of Hinnom is called uh, the valley of slaughter and they fill it up with dead bodies of Jews. They're about to be exiled into Babylon for 70 years. I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place, back to Israel. For I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go to pray to me, and I will listen to you. Now this seems bizarre to us, but God's purpose in this horrific event is to purify Israel of these horrific practices that have polluted the land. Take them off to Babylon. And actually what we know of as Jewish uh, people today was actually created in Babylon. 
you know, the Jews have a really disproportionate number of geniuses. Uh, that was born in, in Babylon. They, the scholastic tradition, the synagogue tradition, the memorization of the scriptures, the rabbinic tradition, all that was born in Babylon. And it, and it served, it served uh, humanity and the nation tremendously ever since. But the message in Jeremiah is, I'm going to bless you one way or the other. Please don't take that path. Please don't take the path through Gehenna. But they insisted on it. So that's the path they took. Back to Mark. It's the same thing. Okay, You can either get rid of sin, set it aside. Does it hurt to set aside pride? Is it painful? It's painful, isn't it? It's as painful as cutting your hand off. Does it hurt to go ask for forgiveness? Or to admit you're wrong, to bring unity back when a group of people are divided? That's about as painful as cutting your hand off, isn't it? Well, the alternative is you either go through that pain or you go to Gehenna. Because the wages, the reward, the consequences of sin is death. Death is separation. So if we want to be separated from the work that God's given us to do, separated from peace and unity, separated from the joy of walking in the Spirit, then all we have to do is sin. And this is the big point of all this, right? It's really a bad idea to sin. It's just not worth it. And God's giving us the most graphic picture that He can come up with to explain this. And He's given it to His disciples. When these guys here cut off your hand, remember, they were just arguing about who's the greatest, and He's saying, cut off your hand rather than go over there to Tophet. Now what's in their mind? It's a valley full of dead bodies and wickedness. Is that what they want? Where is what's going on in Tophet? The worm doesn't die and the fire's never crunched. That's the way sin is. You know, in our culture, we tend to think of sin as something you can manage. We're on the highway to hell. We're on the highway to hell! Right? So, it's fun. And all you got to do is just moderate. Sin is something you need to moderate. Well, no, that's not the way it works. It's death. You can't just have a little division. And it's okay. Purge it out. If you've got some, something against somebody and there's something you can do about it, go, go do something about it right now. If you've got pride as a hold in your life, uh, go do something about it right now. Otherwise, it'll create massive destruction in your life. You see the picture? If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two feet be cast into the valley of slaughter, into the fire that shall never be quenched where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes cast into Gehenna fire. Where the worm doesn't die and the fire's not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire. Everyone seasoned with fire. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Why all of a sudden are we talking about sacrifice? What do you do with a sacrifice? You cook it. Yeah, you cook it, right? Most sacrifices are eaten. 
A few are burned all the way up. Probably don't need to salt that one. You salt the sacrifice because you're going to eat it. You give part to the priest and the rest you go and you have a barbecue with your family. So it's a, it's a celebration. So why do you salt the sacrifice? So it tastes better. And who is happy at the sacrifice? Who's happy at the barbecue? Everybody, except, except the goat. The goat's dead. He gave his life so you can enjoy. What are we supposed to do? Be a living sacrifice. To give our lives so that God can be pleased. Every sacrifice is seasoned with salt. Salt's good. If the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? So here's the whole point of this lesson, boys. Have salt in yourselves, please God. And have peace with one another. What were they doing when this thing started? Arguing on the road. Please God, love others. Ever heard that before? The alternative is the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. It's pretty graphic, don't you think? And you know who went to the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom in this group? At least one person. Remember Peter? After he had uh, rejected Jesus or uh, denied Him. Remember what he did after Jesus caught his eye? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what sin brings. Now, is there restoration? Absolutely. There's restoration. Look at Jeremiah 29. Now, how can you get any worse than Jeremiah 19? And then God comes right along and says, I have your best interest at heart. Why did the city put Gehenna out there to burn all this stuff, dead stuff and everything? It was the best interest of the city to get that stuff out of there. You don't want it living by you. Absolutely, there's restoration. But the point is, you don't have to go there. You can just get rid of it. Just cut it off. So, our first lesson on hell is, if you want to translate Gehenna hell, you can. It's hell on earth. And we can invite it into our lives by continuing to sin instead of cutting it off. And the reward we get is death. Death of relationship, death of uh, living a, a life of joy and peace. And who wants that? See, it's pretty graphic, don't you think? Now, it may take me three weeks to do this topic because I got about halfway through what I thought I was going to cover today. So next week... We're going to talk a little about the lake of fire, which I think you'll find really interesting. And uh, just to give you a little preview, I think part of what the lake of fire is about has to do something with the Lord of the Rings. We'll have a nice picture from that. So are you, if you're going to be here next week, we're going to use your considerable, tra- your considerable dra- drama skills for a short skit. <laughs> <laughs> we may need to use Gollum a little bit. All right. Thanks, God, for this uh, really graphic message. It's not very pleasant to think about because we don't like death and destruction and worms and fire. 
but that, that's a point, really, isn't it, that you've given us, is that you don't want us to have those things, and so you're asking us to make good choices and not have those things and walk in your ways. I pray that you'll give us the wisdom to do that, Lord. Everybody in here, I pray that they'll just think about, you'll bring to mind anything that they're embracing that's pride, division, uh, putting ourselves at the center, not being willing to serve those in our midst who are children. And just bring it to us so we don't have to go through this cleansing of Gehenna. Uh, that we, we can do it instead with the refining fire of your great love that we are submitting to rather than the great love of this adverse consequences that you use to purify us. But you know, Lord, thank you for that too. It's so amazing that you care so much for us that you give us this path of growth so that we can become what, you've, what you want us to be. Thank you for all these different chances you give us, all these different uh, opportunities. Uh, all the all the different um, uh, instances that we get to learn the same lesson over again when we forget. You're just so patient with us, and you treat us like this same child that you held in your arms. It's just incredible that the love that you have for us and that you look out for our best interests. So God, as we as we contemplate these these dramatic negative things, help us just understand that you're just trying to teach us. It's just like like a like a child that you're trying to get not to touch the oven so they won't burn their hand, Lord. And just give us the insight to see sin for what it is, not a, not a triviality and not a a cool thing of culture, but death. And uh, God, I pray that we would uh, embrace that view to the point where we would just just cut it off without a second thought. And as a result, God, I pray that this, this room full of people and, uh, and, the, and our body would have unity and joy and peace and service that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.